sometimes pastors get asked to speak at various occasions outside the like a commencement ceremony and I've done that on a couple of occasions I think for my next commencement address I'd like to somehow incorporate the phrase the best is yet to come I know it's a familiar saying but they are timeless words as well I feel after all there's no way a graduating senior can possibly know what to expect in his or her future I also like this message for young people because not just for an unknown future but because the way that our past tends to stain or break us the phrase is a good reminder especially to young people that the faults and errors and missteps of your past need not permanently define you. To be open to God's future in your life, however, requires more than assenting to a platitude that could come from a Dr. Seuss book. And part of my job as a minister of the gospel isn't just to give generic hope, but to anchor the hope that we all rightly feel in a firm foundation of Scripture. So if Dr. Seuss encourages us or, or other inspirational writers like him that the best is yet to come, then they borrowed it from the Bible. This message ultimately is found in the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, walked, ate, drank, slept on this planet 2,000 years ago, actually died and actually rose again. And because of that, what we call, theologians call the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who meets with Jesus or has a rendezvous with the resurrected Lord can never be the same, and the best is truly yet to come. So in this morning's text, we're going to consider that meeting, that rendezvous that the eleven had with our Lord on a mountain in Galilee. That's the title of my sermon, by the way, Resurrection Rendezvous. And how this meeting will forever change them. My hope is that it will change you as well. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word from Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So far the reading in God's holy word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. O oh God, your word has been read, and now we desire to hear it explained and applied to our lives. in a way that transcends worldly wisdom 
and is anchored in your eternal truth. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections and meditations on each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Resurrection rendezvous. What's the first thing we we gather about this meeting with the risen Lord on the hills and on a mountain in Galilee? The first is that it is a restorative reunion. You see this in verses 16 and 17 of my text. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What do I mean by a restorative reunion? Well, the years-long preparation that Jesus had engaged in with these 12 men, as one commentator put it, Jesus' task force, seemed to have ended in absolute disaster. I mean, it couldn't be worse. Of those 12... One of them has betrayed Jesus, which led to his arrest. The other 11 run in terror. One of them, maybe his best friend, or at least his top two friends, Peter, not once, not twice, three times, once to a little girl, denies having ever met Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself is killed. But none of these seemingly irreversible setbacks are a match for the risen Lord Jesus. No, the resurrection unwinds every single disaster and dissolution. And because he rises from the dead, he effects and creates for the eleven a restorative reunion back in the hills of Galilee where everything began. Take a look again at the verse in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Of course, he predicts this in Matthew 26. He says, All of you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, we will gather again in Galilee. This reveals that the 11 disciples are doing now, post-resurrection, what Jesus commands, what they didn't do, pre-resurrection. It's a restoration. It's on a mountain, this version says, the ESV. It suggests or echoes meetings with God throughout the Scripture. Of course, Moses met with God on a mountain, and we're intended to think about that. But unlike the meeting with God on the mountain where the people cringed with fear, this meeting with God on a mountain is a restorational reunion. The fact that these 11 disciples met with Jesus there, though, we need to note a couple of things. How did they know to go there? Well, the reason is that both the angels at the tomb... And Jesus himself instructed the women to tell the men where to go. That's a delicious irony, isn't it? 
The women are honored by God as the first witnesses to the empty tomb, the first to speak to the risen Christ, the first to fall on their faces and grab a hold of Jesus' feet and worship the risen Christ, and the first to proclaim the good news that he who was dead is now alive. As an aside, I think it's helpful to see how authentic our Gospels are, isn't it? Because if God wanted to communicate something true, why would he do it in such a strange way? As first entrusting the message of the risen Christ, who in the ancient world to people that would be the least credible witnesses of all. Now, if this were just a human fabrication, we would definitely airbrush the women out in a first century document. But God not only is testifying, I think, here to the authenticity of the scriptures, he's also communicating something important about the Christian community itself. Which is that while there is a special role for teaching and authoritative proclamation which lands only with the apostles and their successors, the community of faith has a radical equality about it where women and men encourage one another in a mutual way. So while the women were first, it is not ultimately they but the 11 men who have been called as apostolic witnesses and who will have the sit-down meeting with our Lord Jesus in which the instructions for carrying on the kingdom are given. This brings me to a second thing that we need to see about this restorative reunion. They are being restored. In the message to the women in Matthew 28, verse 10, I won't take time to go back there, but Jesus says, Go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. My brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but it takes me more than just a couple of days to call someone my brother who has totally betrayed me. This is a risen Lord and the Son of God, however. It's a restorative reunion. Jesus has risen from the dead, and the risen Lord says, go tell my, we'll insert this explanation, forgiven cleansed, restored, reunited brothers. Not to beat themselves up too bad because we have work to do. Go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee just like I said we would do. The devil can take you down. But with the risen Lord, he can't keep you down. There is a resurrection, restoration, and a reunion that takes place on this mountain in Galilee. But it's interesting also, and I'll say this just in passing, look at verse 17. The reunion wasn't immediate, not for everyone. For some, the reunion was an instant, eye-opening, mind-blowing experience. They fall on their face like the women did. They grab Jesus' feet and they worship him. Pure idolatry in a Jewish context, unless Jesus is God. But not everyone did. 
It says, some doubted. It's so cryptic, so enigmatic. What are we to make of this phrase, some doubted, in Matthew 28, 17? I have a couple of thoughts. These are speculations. It's quiet at this point, but consider this possibility. In John's account of the resurrection, doubting Thomas, so-called doubting Thomas, didn't believe at first. So we have kind of an extended kind of narrative in John chapter 20 that records or describes how Thomas in his mental reservations, by the way, I can relate to Thomas, he's so passionate for the truth, he refuses to believe it. And if that seems contradictory for you, then you probably aren't like Thomas. But some of us are so passionate for the truth, we're very slow to believe. Maybe Thomas gets a bad rap. Maybe we should call him Passionate Thomas. He's doubting Thomas. There's no doubt about it. He doubts. So maybe this is Matthew's allusion to Thomas. Some doubted. I think that's possible. Maybe it's not speaking so much of kind of a Thomas-like reservation. Maybe it's more of a Peter-like reservation. There's no more room for me. I have totally failed. I once was a disciple, but no more. I once was in the inner circle, but no more. And for Peter, it would take not one, not two, but three questions from Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I know, you know that I love you. That threefold restoration, which, again, by the resurrection, unwinds his threefold abdication of his office as apostolic champion. Maybe it's self-doubt that, that Matthew is referring to, in other words. Maybe it's nothing so sort of spiritual as that. Maybe it's just kind of like, excuse me? Like, is this really happening? Pinch me, is it real? Maybe it's that sort of a hesitation, not quite full-on doubt. Hard to say. There are many flavors to the idea of doubt. And regardless of what it means, it would seem that the immediate sight of Jesus did not bring an immediate, full, heartfelt, overflowing sense of worship for the risen Jesus, which I think is useful. Isn't Scripture so useful? I mean, what about you? This first point, this restoration reunion, I think offers good news for you this morning as well, good news of restoration and renewal for you between you and the Lord whom, I'll put it this way, you have betrayed What God wants you to know from the text this morning is this. You, by your sin and denial, have separated yourself from Christ. Now, I don't know what it is necessarily. I can take a guess. I mean, I have red blood flowing in my veins. I know what I struggle with. Admitting that Jesus is my Lord under pressure from people that don't love Him. Keeping quiet when I should open my mouth. 
opening my mouth when I should keep it closed, losing my temper and becoming angry when the Spirit of Christ calls me to self-control, and absolutely violating the new covenant in doing so, turning my eyes towards worthless things or the eyes of my mind, and acting as if I can find pleasure and satisfaction and contentment in anything besides the risen Lord. Oh no, I need this, this meeting in Galilee. I need to be restored on the mountain with Jesus and reconciled to my Lord. I need to hear him say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I need to hear, put your hands in my wrists and in my side. See, Philip, that it is me. Now, whatever the separation is for you, whatever you have permitted to come into your life, something that you've allowed to come between you and your Lord, your first love, whatever it is, this morning is a chance for a restoration. Because he is alive, he is seeking to restore you. Perhaps if you're not a professing Christian, you're still window shopping or kind of peeking in through the window saying, what are those people doing in there? What I'm telling you is the resurrection happened. And it is the thing that you should trust and believe. To illustrate this, the importance of believing, that I, I've shared this story from the pulpit before. There's an anecdote about a famous atheist in the early 20th century, W.C. Fields. On his deathbed, W.C. was found by his wife flipping through the pages of a copy of a Bible, the last book she expected him to be looking at. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, loopholes, my dear, looking for loopholes. See, there's hope even for W.C. in the last hours of his life. Now, I don't know how he ended that survey of Scripture, whether it was fruitful for him or not. The Lord knows. But the resurrected Jesus bids you, summons you to be restored to him, no matter what your past has been. Second, this resurrection rendezvous is not just a restorative reunion, but it is also an announcement of Jesus' comprehensive authority. Take a look at our text in verse 18. Jesus says, when he arrives in verse 18, he comes and says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what I'm saying is his comprehensive authority. Jesus is boldly stating a fact, a fact about who he is and the power that he has been given. Of course, this has been hinted at throughout the gospel accounts again and again and again. We hear about this unusual man with an unusual message that is, that is doing unusual things. People are amazed Matthew 7, 29, after the conclusion of the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave, perhaps the most famous sermon ever given by anyone, the Sermon on the Mount. It ends by saying that the religious leaders were angry 
but the people were amazed at the authority with which he taught. He wasn't constantly quoting the commentaries and the scholars and the seminaries. This was an original man. Matthew 9, 6, we learn that the Son of Man has authority on earth even to forgive sins. And that was sort of a, a throwaway thing, like he was healing. And, and the leaders were objecting to his healing ministry. And so he says, okay, you've got a problem with me healing? How about I just forgive his sins and we'll call it even? That was not helpful, Jesus. Authority. We see a hint of it in Matthew eleven twenty seven, where he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, but only the little children know it. Not the wise and understanding to them, to the important people, it's been hidden. Well, there's no more hiding it. He declares it openly, and he declares it to one and all. All authority has been given to me. And I say it's a comprehensive declaration because look at what he says. It's all authority, not some authority. And it's in heaven and on earth. So in the biblical geometry or architecture of the universe, we have in this phrase, heaven and earth, a structure of creation. So earth is anything that you can see, touch, smell, or hear. It's the physical world that we live on. Planet Earth, yes, but Earth in the Bible goes beyond simply this planet to include all the stars, all the planets, all of created reality. In fact, we would say time itself, which isn't visible, but we all experience its, its effects on a daily basis. Time itself is part of Earth in this biblical sense. So what's heaven? Well, heaven is also part of created reality. But it's the invisible side of created reality, minus time. So heaven is the place where God dwells. Heaven is the place where the angels and the demons live and, and fight the battle that we call the spiritual warfare that goes on all around us, unseen by human eyes. So what Jesus is saying, in a nutshell, is that no matter where you go in this physical realm, and no matter where you go in the invisible realm of the spiritual powers, in both spheres, in all of creation, I am Lord. I have all authority. This is a comprehensive declaration. It's interesting to compare what Jesus receives. He says, it has been given to me. He doesn't say who's been, who gave it to him, but we know it's God the Father, right? Compare what Jesus receives from God the Father with what he was offered in the beginning of his ministry. This is what's sort of called, uh, maybe it's the, the Bible's version of holding out for a bigger NFL contract. I don't mean to be disrespectful. So Jesus was offered by the devil in the beginning of his ministry. Listen to what he's offered in Matthew 4. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All the kingdoms of the world, pretty good deal. Jesus thinks about it and says, no. 
But unlike an NFL player, it isn't that he's gonna, he thinks he's going to get something more. He says, that's not allowed. He says, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. So by his faithfulness, while Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus received all authority, not only all the kingdoms of the world, but all the kingdoms of heaven as well. And so while Isaiah, when he was introduced into the seventh heaven in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6, covered his face, covered his mouth, fell on the ground, cried out in a loud voice, mourning, weeping, and wailing, woe to me, I am undone. Jesus has inherited that because he is Lord. That's his home. It's his. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. And Philippians 2, speaking of this comprehensive authority, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand with, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one which is to come. All things under his feet. And Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him in the resurrection and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Comprehensive authority. So in this resurrection rendezvous on the mountain, not only begins a restoration of the backslidden disciples, restoring them to spiritual usefulness, but it's founded upon a comprehensive authority which is announced only after Jesus rises from the dead. It has been hinted throughout his earthly ministry, but doesn't come into bold relief until he defeats the ultimate enemy, death, and declares to all the vast extent of his authority. I want to pause here and encourage you. If Jesus has all this authority, if he's defeated the ultimate enemy, if everything has been entrusted to him, then he's the one. He's the one you should believe, love, and follow with your life. Well, we're thinking about the resurrection rendezvous. We see how the disciples have been restored. We see the authority that Jesus declares that he has been given. Finally, I want you to notice there is a global commission. And this flows from the first two points. If the disciples aren't restored, which is the first point, and Jesus doesn't have all authority, which is the second point, there's no sending of the 11 disciples to do the work in the world, my third point. But the disciples are restored, and Jesus is risen from the dead and has been given all authority. And because of that, there isn't a corner of the globe where the message of deliverance and the good news of the gospel isn't valid. There isn't a sphere of life that doesn't need to hear and see applied the gospel of our salvation, the dying and rising of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a global commission which they're given. I want to illustrate this with uh, two examples. One is a military commission. A military commission is not one that you're free to put down. Once you're commissioned in the military, if you fail to show up at the appointed time and place, you're AWOL, absent without leave. Not a good thing. 
And so our military service personnel have a very high sense of duty, rightly so, and I respect it. This is higher. Because if you're enlisted as a Marine or as a, uh, someone in the, the Army or the Navy or one of the other branches of the armed service, your commission comes from a human power who is destined to change and ultimately will not last beyond this life. But Jesus, our commanding officer, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's a commission that demands every ounce of loyalty and obedience that that is required from someone serving in our armed forces and more. The other illustration of a commission that I thought of was of an artist. And if an artist is commissioned to, say, make a sculpture or a painting or a piece of music, every ounce of creativity is summoned or called forth from that individual. The best work is required. And a lot of us as artists, we, we struggle to produce our art without a commission, without somebody asking. It's like, well, but when we're asked, could, could, you, could you please make this sculpture for me? Could you please compose a piece of music for me? It's like, yes, I can do that. Now we have a goal. And we give ourselves toiling night and day, fatigue, through writer's block and, and other challenges that artists face to produce something truly beautiful, one of a kind. And I think in the same way, the disciples are commissioned to do something unique and one of a kind, a, a masterpiece for the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the one who has restored them and reunited them to himself. They are, in fact, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, they are Christ's workmanship, his poiema. Created in Christ, in the risen Christ, for good works that they should walk in them. And so this global commission is one that, that calls them to do the very thing that they were designed and put on the planet to do in the first place. And many artists feel this way. We feel like we're creating something that already exists somewhere else. We're just giving it a voice, a shape, a form. So both, I think, the military sense of commissioning and the artistic sense of commissioning applies here. And they apply to these 11 stalwart, well, becoming stalwart apostolic champions. They're not yet where they need to be. But they don't just apply to these 11 men and eventually Matthias will join their ranks to fill the gap that is left by the betrayer. They also apply to missionaries and pastors who carry on the apostolic commission. That's the work I'm doing this morning. But it isn't just apostolic missionaries and pastors and preachers and evangelists who are commissioned. I think ordinary Christians, men and women, boys and girls, are all encompassed in this great commission, this global commission. Every single Christian follower who turns from his or her sin to the risen Lord is called in your sphere of influence to make the good news known in some way, shape, or form. 
And there are four commands here, which I only have time to briefly mention this morning. He says, go into all the world. That's the first command. That's the, 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 there, there's no place, as I had already mentioned, where this isn't included. This is different because initially the apostles in Matthew 10, 6 and in Matthew 15, they were told only to go within Israel. But the resurrection changes the geographic boundaries of their commission and ours as well. The gospel proclamation of the kingdom of God resumes with their restoration, but now with a wider, with a global scope, a multi-ethnic character, we could even say, a multicultural dynamic is built into the very fabric of the gospel. All the nations, all the peoples, all the languages. And the gospel will take on some slightly different expressions depending on the context in which it is given, depending on the time period in which it comes. Those expressions also, by the way, bring weaknesses. There's a beautiful thing about the American church today. The capacity we have, the preponderance of churches, the multiplying of scriptures and commentaries and Bible studies and conferences, speakers and teachings of the Lord that go across, across the country and around the world, but, oh dear God, have mercy on the American church. Because amidst all of our blessings and the, the piles, the heaps, the treasure that we've been given, there is an idleness and a, and a laziness, uh, almost an indolence to our witness, which our brothers and sisters in China and Indonesia in Africa, they put us to shame. They put us to shame. So we are to go into all the world. That's the first command. The second one is to make disciples there in verse 19. The disciples had previously been called by Jesus. He was the first disciple maker. Peter, come on. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But now Peter's called to be a disciple maker. Because Jesus is ascending into heaven. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God. The mission doesn't stop with Peter. These 12 guys are going to change the world because Peter's going to preach and then one of his converts is going to preach and then one of his converts is going to preach and then a guy named Phil comes around centuries later. He hears the gospel and he preaches. Now some of you are hearing it. It's not original with me. God made me a disciple maker because he wants some of you to become disciple makers. For this desk, yes, pastors, but then all of you in your sphere of influence are disciple makers. Isn't that exciting? So I see 30, 40 empty chairs, 30, 40 opportunities for us to come tell a friend, as the woman at the well did, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she was so excited. She was a disciple maker. A woman who had four husbands and the fifth was not even her husband. She was living with him. She practically converted her whole village. It was like Billy Graham of the ancient world. Making disciples. 
Paul said, the things you have heard and seen in me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, entrust these to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. It's the four-generation verse in the Scripture. The things you've heard and seen in me, Paul, that's first generation. Timothy is the second one. He's the one reading the letter. Faithful men, anthropoi pistoi, that's the third. And the fourth is others also. So every one of us should find ourselves at some point in that chain of discipleship. Discipleship means tutelage or the school of the Lord. We're starting tomorrow, the school of discipleship. I love that title. I hope, I hope we pack it out tomorrow as people come and they want to learn about their faith, not just to you know, grow bigger brains so we can fill in the cracks of our faith and become solid disciples who then make disciples who then teach others also the third command is the baptism command baptizing them in the one name and then he lists three names by the way this could be a whole sermon on the trinity there is perhaps no more important verse in the scriptures teaching the christian doctrine of the holy trinity almighty god the father the son and the holy spirit matthew 28 19 it's right there But the focus that I'll have this morning as we're talking about the resurrection rendezvous is that in the power of the risen Christ, the renewed and reunited disciples are to baptize. I think this shows that baptism, which before the resurrection had a kind of preparatory role as a cleansing ritual for the people that were expecting and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Well, that's no more. Now, in replacement of the entry ritual of circumcision, new covenant baptism is the sign and seal of God's special people. And I will add, it is first and foremost His promise to you, not your promise to Him. Baptism is the embrace of a loving God, of a completely unworthy sinner. That's why you are passively baptized. Someone does it to you. God loves you. We love God because He first loved us. So baptism is a sign and seal of being cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's not just because I'm a Presbyterian, but because I love the Bible, I've seen it's clear that the amount of water isn't what matters in this thing. It's the fact that you're cleansed by the blood of Christ. So whether you go all the way down into the water or we pour it on your head or we sprinkle it on you, whatever it is, sprinkle it on you like that sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar in the Old Testament. The fact is that we're baptizing you in the triune name of God for the remission of sins. And you are now counted as a member of the covenant family. And the fourth command is a command to command. Teaching them to obey. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This fourth instruction that is given to the disciples tells them the content of their discipleship. 
There is no easy believism in the church. Now, it's easy to put your faith in Christ. It's as simple as saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe you raised, you raised from the dead. And if you pray that prayer today, if you're not a Christian, you will never be the same. But that's just the first step. You are to be taught by disciple maker to observe all that Jesus commanded. So we'll start with reading the New Testament. So if you're a new believer, one of the first things you need to do is actually start reading the words that Jesus commanded. We can start with the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You might start by memorizing parts of it. Because how are you going to keep Jesus' words if it isn't written on your heart, if you're not meditating on it, Psalm 1, day and night like a tree planted by streams of water? How easily you will be thrown off track. And it's interesting how confident Jesus is teaching them to obey not all that God has commanded, but all that I have commanded. This is a proof that Jesus is God. Because no Jewish rabbi would teach you to follow his commands without also mentioning the Lord's, except Jesus, the one rabbi who is the very Son of God. I also think we have here an implicit expectation if, if these 11 men are going to teach them to observe all that I have commanded, then they need to write it down. And so the Christian canon is not some weird thing that came around three or four centuries after the risen Christ uh, left the planet in his ascension. But it was embedded, I believe, here in the very final words he speaks before he leaves in his ascension. And I can see him going like, guys, is somebody getting this? We've got to write this down. Pass me one of those parchments. And of course, Matthew was one of the twelve Luke was not, nor was Mark. Mark was a companion of Peter, who was one of the twelve. And of course, John was. So we have both the apostles themselves writing, and then we have the apostles delivering what what took place to those who did write, so that we can teach all that he commanded. Before I conclude this morning, I want to address a common objection that I've heard raised when talking about the resurrection, it's this. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. I call this, this uh, tribe of folks, we're from Missouri. The show me state. The thing about this objection is that it's true. There is no possible way that you can go to a mountain in Galilee and meet Jesus in the flesh. It's not going to happen. Well, if it does happen, it's too late, so... It's not going to happen in this life. But I wonder, if we could do that, would it be enough for you? Would it be enough? It's possible that it wouldn't be enough. And if it's possible that it wouldn't be enough, why not simply believe the testimony of those who were there? Given the possibility, the very real possibility that you and I would have been in the crowd of those who doubted and not those who fell down and grabbed Jesus' feet and worshipped him. I believe God wants you to believe the testimony that has been given to you, even though you can't see it with your own eyes.
I began this morning by observing that the best is yet to come. And while this is a great platitude for graduates, it really is true for those who are in Christ. It isn't just a a piety or a wise saying. Unlike the world, the Son of God does not say to you, this is a good way to go, you should walk in it. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, here are some important truths that you're going to need in this next chapter of your life if, if you're a graduate. He says, I am the truth. He also says, if you're ashamed of me when you hear this call and you turn the other way, I will look the other way when I come as God without disguise. So whatever keeps you from me today, throw it away. This is the resurrection rendezvous I think you were called to experience today. And we know this because rising from the dead with that comprehensive authority which was mentioned earlier, Jesus is able to say in his final words in Matthew, a promise, I am with you always. Without this final promise, neither they nor we could carry on in this world and we certainly wouldn't be able to fulfill the commission that he gives us. Once again, as we have recently learned, the things that God requires, he provides. When he tells them these four commands, he promises to be with them, enabling them to do the very thing that they have been called to do. This is good news for those who are trying to save a broken marriage or relationship, or courage, if you need courage, to break a relationship that needs to be broken. It's good news for those who are trying to say no to addictions which are enslaving, or for those who are trying to begin good and godly habits which bring blessing life, and freedom. I am with you always. It's good news for those who are struggling to admit sins publicly and not hiding them in the dark anymore. I am with you always is also good news for those who need to bear the burdens of those who are broken by their sin. Each one of these scenarios are connected to going into all the world, making disciples, baptizing or living up to our baptism if you're already baptized and learning and continuing to learn to obey all that he commanded. Each one of these things relate to the resurrection rendezvous which I believe awaits each one of us this morning. Let's get going. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this morning's worship service and a special one indeed on Easter Sunday we thank you that you have promised in your resurrected glory to meet with all who come to you by faith ask and ye shall receive seek and ye shall find knock and the door shall be opened unto you because you are so good and kind and generous you will not turn away any sincere seeker no matter how defective the seeking may be no matter how far gone we are, how far we have strayed, how, how many times we have promised and then broken that promise, your promise remains unbroken. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it hasn't come yet. Here we are with an opportunity once again to renew our faith in the risen Lord and to rededicate ourselves to living lives that please you and to playing our part in this great commission expressing uniquely what each one of us can express and 
not turning our back on our commanding officer. So Lord, help us go with this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.